NBA on NBC. What is up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock, and you're listening to Pot of Fame, the podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not they should get a call to the hall. On today's podcast, we're talking about former NBA small forward Shane Battier and whether or not he should be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And joining us in just a moment to discuss Battier's career and Hall of Fame candidacy is NBA writer Matt Issa. But before we get to Matt, let's talk a little more about Shane. The guy played from 2001 to 2014 and for his career, averaged nine points per game, four boards and two assists while shooting 44% from the field, 38% from three and 74% from the free throw line with one steal per game and 0.9 blocks. When you add all of this up, again, not very overwhelming. 8,408 points, 4,082 rebounds, 988 steals, 906 blocks. So yes, at first glance, Shane Battier probably shouldn't be being talked about on this podcast. However, as I've said many times before, Basketball Hall of Fame, they care about everything. They care about high school. They care about college. It's supposed to be, of course, international, but it's supposed to be anytime you play basketball, it counts. And, you know, Shane Battier really knocks out of the park the first two stops. Three state championships in high school. He's player of the year. He's Michigan Mr. Basketball. So he knocks it out there. Three state championships. Goes to Duke. I think a lot of people probably think of Shane Battier at Duke all the time when they think about him. Two final fours, one championship. Most outstanding player in the tournament. Two-time All-American, Player of the Year, Wooden, Naismith. He won every award possible, basically, there. Uh, And some of his numbers are just insane. Like, his defensive metrics there, I mean, his his senior year, he's going 20 points per game, seven boards, two assists, 2.1 steals, 2.3 blocks, shooting 42% from three. Um, Pretty nuts. He had two seasons actually back-to-back junior and senior where he's over two blocks, two steals. That didn't translate to the NBA, but showed how great of a defensive player he was in terms of putting up those. He was able to put up those kinds of numbers. And then again, he gets to the NBA and he, and he wins two championships. So again, first part of his career, high school, college, there's not many people with a better track record. And then he gets to the NBA. And yes, all those totals I named earlier are not very impressive. But the thing is, and Matt and I go into this in quite detail, you know, Shane Battier's role was not to score a bunch of points. His role was not even to grab a bunch of rebounds or distribute. His role on the basketball court was to do whatever the team needed and also help that team win by fitting in as a perfect puzzle piece to whatever surrounding, you know, unit he had. And at times he did, you know, shoot threes and score. But a lot of times it was playing solid defense. It was not committing fouls, not committing turnovers, making the right pass, boxing out his guys so someone else could get a rebound. He basically did all the, you know, you hear this all the time, all the little things and intangibles. Shane Battier is, he's the definition of that. He's not just the guy that did that. He might be one of the best, if not the best glue guy of all time. And what Matt and I talk about today is, is being the best glue guy or one of the best glue guys of all time is that warrant the basketball hall of fame. If you can supplement being one of the best glue guys of all time in the NBA 
and also having this all-time high school and college career, is that enough for the Hall of Fame? And man, I are going to cover that today. I had a blast with Matt doing it. And I just want to call this out here because I don't get too into too much with Matt today. But again, Shane Battier, he's never impressing you with his scoring or anything like that. His highest scoring season was his rookie year where he almost averaged 15 points a game after that. You know, he was really in the 7, 8, 9 range every year. But in, in two NBA finals um, with the Heat, uh, in the first one in 2012 where they beat OKC, Battier averaged 12 points per game and three boards. Okay, that's decent in, in the finals. 12 points, three boards. Shot 61% from the field, 58% from three, 71% from the free throw line. His 58% from three is still the finals record today. And then the following year, which you actually probably remember more when the Heat repeated in 2013, he only averaged six points in two boards that series. But, this is a huge but, that series went to seven games with San Antonio. He dropped 18 points in game seven, six threes in game seven, which I think got Heat the win. Without Shane Battier, without those 18 points, I don't think they're replacing those points. I think the Heat lose that game. LeBron only wins one finals in Miami. And we maybe look at that whole, you know, run of maybe only one championship to two in Miami is not as, you know, high regards as we do today, which was, again, two finals in four years, or two championships in four years. So I want to call it out because, again, we're going to get lost a lot in, oh, he didn't put up numbers and, oh, he's a glue guy. And I do feel like sometimes glue guy is given to the guy that, you know, isn't that good. But again, Matt and I are going to talk about is being the very best glue guy, which Matt and I both consider Shane Battier to be, maybe the definition of a glue guy. Is that enough? With, again, an all-time high school and college career, is that enough to supplement it, him to get him in the Hall of Fame? So those are the quick facts out of the way. Let's bring on Matt. All right, so I'd like to welcome back to the podcast after about a year hiatus here, NBA writer Matt Issa. Matt is someone who I talked to last year, and he had just launched a mini-series for a podcast, and I think he was just starting to get writing, and over the last year, I've watched him, you know, begin to be featured basically everywhere. You're seeing him on basketballnews.com, he's in SB Nation, fan-sided, all over the place. He actually has a new 10-part uh, miniseries called Blazing the Trail on Basketball News where he's breaking down some of the most revolutionary players of the 1990s and 2000s. So not the best, not all the best, but the revolutionary players. Um, it's been an excellent series. I've been following it. He had an article actually on our topic today, which is how we got talking about doing an episode on Shane Battier. Matt, welcome back. How have you been? Oh man, that was a lot. Really nice introduction. Um, to answer your final question, I'm doing awesome. I have my my second cup of coffee. My second and third cup technically is all in one giant mug. Uh, so I'm ready to drink coffee, talk about hoops um, the way they usually do, which is the, my favorite way to talk about basketball. It's like, you know, what I love about this podcast and now I'm, I'm already getting on a tangent, but I love this podcast because it's like, it's what you do with your friends on like Saturday night and you're just like drinking. And then all of a sudden it's like, 
do you remember uh, Terrell Brandon? And then you start naming off all the teams like Terrell Brandon played for. And then it's like you do another player. Oh, did you know Terrell Brandon played with Danny Ferry? Did you know Danny Ferry averaged 20 points per game a year? Something crazy like that. And then you just go, everyone's had those moments. Any sports fan has had those moments where they um, they read off all the starting quarterbacks of the 2006 NFL season. That's just like something we do. And this podcast is like the perfect uh, time to do that. So I'm just, I'm in a good mood and I'm ready to go. No, and we're excited to have you back. And, and Matt, whenever – I'm not going to lie, man, you will take – so the thing I love about Matt, he covers again. He covers the NBA today, so follow him throughout this year. He does a great job um, breaking down a film, uh, talking about the things that maybe you're not noticing in the game. But the thing I love about Matt, he also really respects and cares about the history of the game. And he'll go way back. And, Matt, I'll see you on Twitter. You're like – it'll be like a Friday like morning. It'll be pretty early. You have your co- your coffee. You always make your coffee look really nice. It'll be kind of like rainy out or something. And you'll be breaking down like 2002, like Kings Pistons footage. And I'm like, and you got a notebook. I see you have all these notes. I'm like, this guy really cares about this stuff. And he really knows this stuff. So that's why we're excited to have you here. That's why you're good at what you do. Um, last time we talked, we talked, we went all the way back to the seventies and talked about a player. I don't think many people maybe casual fans of the game or new fans of the game had heard of Walter Davis. We talked about his career, his Hall of Fame can see. Today, we're talking about a player I think most people will know um, because he played more recently. He had a very, you know, well-renowned career at Duke. He had a very successful NBA career. And that is Shane Battier. I think many people will probably be surprised. We're talking about him on this podcast because we're talking about the Hall of Fame and someone with career averages of nine points per game, four boards, two assists is not someone that really comes up, but we're going to talk a lot about his career, what he meant to basketball. And I think with Shane Battier, more than anything, it's all the intangibles, all the little things he did that maybe don't show up in a box score is what we think of. But Matt, the first thing I'm going to ask you today, when you think of Shane, Shane Battier or Shane Battier comes to mind, what's the first thing that's coming to your mind? Well, I mean, the first thing is that I spent like, I don't know, like 80, 100 hours in my room alone, just thinking about the guy for the, the part of the series that I did on him. But like, in terms of just like things that comes to mind, it's probably the, the patented hand in the face contest that he used to have. I mean, he's famous for doing it on Kobe Bryant. You've seen that picture, I'm sure where his hand looks like it's just like assaulting Kobe's face. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's probably my my number one favorite Battier memory. Yeah, the Battier guarding Kobe for some reason is like ingrained in my brain. I think I think people really would get into why, like, look at this guy. He can stop Kobe Bryant. Again, one of the best offensive players of all time. You know, the thing for me, and I kind of brought up already, but he's the ultimate, He in the dictionary, if you were trying to look up someone that, like, you know, does all the little things that don't show up again in that box score that 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 was Shane Battier. You know, he he took a ton of charges. He didn't get a ton of blocks and steals, mm-hmm. but he played great weak side defense. He didn't commit a lot of fouls, which is great, right? Because no one's getting the free throw line against him. Diving for loose balls, deflecting passes, maybe not getting the rebound, but boxing out the other guy so someone else can get the rebound. He basically did everything that if it's he's the ultimate eye test guy. If you watch the film of Shane Battier playing a game, you see the impact he has. But if you're like 
someone like me, or I think someone like you that goes back and looks at old games. And if you just looked at the numbers, he's not ever going to really pop off the screen. But if you watch any team he played for, you're like, this guy is one of the most important players on the floor because he does all these things that make the overall team he plays for better. Yeah. I wrote an article. Um, I want to say in Marchish about Mikhail Bridges guy kind of reminds me of Batty a little bit defensively. And I think the title is something like the player you need to see to believe. Right. And I think that's kind of the thing with Batty, but it's not just like, you can't just watch him. You need to, you need to kind of have a familiarity with like the context of why he's doing everything he does. Cause it's like, so here's an example. Uh, one of the first games I start, I watched when I got into the bad A film, it was like a 2007 ESPN Friday night game. I think Doris Burke was calling it. I can't remember the other person. It was against the Denver Nuggets with Carmelo Anthony. And of course, Battier being the guy you put on, you know, the other team's best scorer, he was guarding him and Melo hits these two really tough fall away mid-range jump shots in Battier's face. Battier does the, you know, the hand in the face type thing, all that. And, you know, he, so he starts the game two for two you know, fast forward to the very end of the game, they lose by like the Nuggets lose by like 18 points. And Melo has like, I think it's, I don't know the exact number on my uh, top of my head, probably really wrong, but it was like 22 points on 24 shots, something like that, something just super inefficient. And what went down there in that game is basically the same thing that we saw in those first two makes, but it's just that Melo started to finally miss those really tough shots. You know what I mean? You can only hit so many tough shots so many times. But the thing about Battier that you need to know is it was always process over results. Um, and I think that's just something, and we'll talk about this when we get into the Hall of Fame part, something that you could take with you in life. It's just like, you know, me and you, we do this basketball thing, right? We talk about basketball. Um, and you know, if it results in us being like famous basketball analysts, cool. But the the process, the reason why we do it is because we love basketball. And so like, you know, we, we appreciate, we do things for the process, not the results, right? Same thing in basketball. Battier, you know, the results of those first two shots were makes on Melo's part, but the process of Battier forcing him into these tough shots will always win out at the end of the day. If you're only doing things for the results, you're bound to make a mistake. But if you do them for the process and your process is in good faith, then it'll always work out. And that was like the really, the really big thing about Battier is he was such a big process guy and he he trusted the process more than probably anyone in NBA history, to be honest. Yeah, and, and definitely, I mean, thinking of Battier's career playing through the 2000s, early into the 2010s when I think analytics was really starting to get in there, especially with Daryl Moore, him in, in the Rockets. And, you know, he really did start to look into that maybe, I don't want to say he's the first person, I'm sure he's not the first, but in terms of the actual basketball players playing, he really did care about, again, which, you know, should I force him left or right? These picking, you know, the spots on the floor, he's going to miss that shot more than often. Not, even if I force him to a couple of times, he, he makes them. Eventually, he's going to start missing them. And mm. I know that. And I'm not going to change what I'm doing. And he was disciplined and he was a student in the game. And I know bas high basketball IQ and stuff gets thrown around all the time. But I would say he's probably one of the smarter players to ever play in the game. And again, he had to be because his athleticism was just pretty subpar. Um, he had a nice wingspan. He had a nice NBA body. But 
he was not the guy who was going to be dunking on people. He was not the fastest guy out there, but he was such a good defender because he knew exactly where he needed to be. He knew exactly what he needed to do. And as you just said, Matt, process-wise, there probably wasn't many people, if any, that have ever really been better than him in that. I, I do want to move to our next segment, though. We call this That Memorable Moment. And we try to look at someone's career and just say, you know, what was this player's best shot or game or season playoff series? It can really be whatever you want. Matt, what would you say Shane Battier's most memorable moment was? Um, well, it's basically his like little cat and mouse rivalry with Kobe, where it's like he's like pissing Kobe off because the way he's guarding him, but he never says anything to him. He's not like Lance Stevenson blowing in LeBron's ear. He just kind of like, he tries to avoid poking the beast. And he's talked about this. He says like, I don't want to make him any more angry than he already is. And like you, for the great ones, you really don't want them finding any additional inspiration. So he really just would kind of leave him alone, kind of laissez-faire, but he would just pester him all game with his defense. And it culminates in that 2009 playoff series where, I mean, they almost beat the Lakers and go to the Western Conference Finals. They take him as, like, pretty much to their brink. And this is a really depleted Rockets team. I can't remember which order they go down, but I know, um, I think it's McGrady goes down first, and then Yao goes down. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, they almost beat him still, even though it's just, like, Shane Battier and, like, Aaron Brooks. And uh, at the time, he was referred to as Ron Artest. But, um. Yeah, so that's probably my favorite is that little cat and mouse rivalry. No, that that's excellent. I think that probably comes to most people's mind too. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to call out because, again, Shane Battier, we talk about this guy's not scoring a ton, right? His highest scoring average was his rookie year. Mm-hmm. After his rookie year, he I think he had one season where he had eight shot attempts a game. He just didn't shoot. Like, in his mind, I think him shooting, unless it was an open three, was not what's best for the team, which was always what he cared about. However, there was one game, and it was a very important game in his career, that he actually, his shooting did help not only win a game, but win an NBA title, and that was game seven of the 2013 NBA Finals. So this was the second championship that he'd actually end up winning uh, after they won in 2012. Battier's 34 years old uh, this year, and actually, until that game seven, he was having a terrible playoff run for the whole playoffs he shot under 30 percent like I'm talking it was good for him not to shoot but in game seven which Miami ends up winning 95-88 Bettier goes and plays 29 minutes and he sinks six three-pointers guys 18 points um, no turnovers because that's Shane Battier and this is a game that the Miami Heat needed all 18 of those points because if you go back and watch that game Chris Bosch actually has zero points in that game. Ray Allen has zero points in that game. LeBron drops 37, as LeBron does. Wade dropped 23. Chalmers had 14, but that was really it besides Battier's 18. Box plus minus, which is Battier's friend throughout his career. He's plus 24, which is even higher than LeBron. And his offensive rating, because all he's doing is making threes out there, is, is absolutely off the charts. So for me... Shane Battier, he's behind the scenes kind of the whole time. He's this defensive guy. He's the team player. But in a moment where the Miami Heat, you know, I don't think they win that game really without him there making those open threes. I don't think they win that 
second finals there. I think that maybe LeBron only wins one finals there. Does he leave after that year and not come back into those? I, I don't know. There could be alternate history there. But for me, that is one game that really stands out where Battier scoring for once really maybe won a championship, you know, for the Heat in a huge spot. And this was at the very tail end of his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I talked to, I had the privilege of talking to Coach, uh, well, now Associate General Manager David Fisdale um, for the Battier portion. And he was he was kind of saying, like, uh, you know, people kind of think that when they think of Battier, even the ones who are, like, really well aware of what he was doing, it's re- really the Houston years they focus on. Where in Miami, I mean, you got to think about it. The year before he wasn't there, you know, they end up falling short to the Dallas Mavericks. He comes in and LeBron James, this guy who's got this huge elephant on his back, is finally a world champion, you know. And he he sa- he even says, like, you know, everyone in the league just thought of Shane Battier as a past, you know, he tossed, he was an all-star. I don't know if he was a top 25 player in the league in 2012, 2013, but he was a hell of a player. And I mean, both sides of the ball. He's just like the perfect guy to slot next to these on-ball superstars like LeBron James. So all he does on offense is shoot threes, screen, make quick decisions, doesn't turn the ball over. Like, that's, like, literally the perfect, like, you know, tertiary, fourth piece, whatever you want to call him, like, just off-ball guy to put next to these on-ball Helio guys. And then defensively, um, he lost a step at that point, but still, like, you know, one of the best perimeter defenders you can – buy with money you know yeah he's he's the perfect compliment piece when you have a bunch of superstars he would he would thrive in today's nba as well because there's more superstars than i feel like almost ever and you need those kind of guys in your lineup because there's only one ball and egos get in the way a lot of the time shane battier i cannot imagine anyone would say that guy had an ego he was unselfish he was the model teammate and he was perfect for those Heat team to win. And as you said, right before he got there, you know, that Heat team didn't win the championship. Now, I, I don't know, you know, if he never comes there, do, do they not win either of those? I don't know. I think they maybe find someone else to fill in. But he was the perfect piece. And who knows? I mean, he did play a major role. He played in that first finals run. He was playing well over 30 minutes a game. He was one of the crucial pieces. He's just He's only scoring six or seven points and those people kind of get lost in the shuffle. But if you really watch what's going on and you talk to anyone on that team, they're going to say Shane Patty played a huge role and we'll get to this probably in a little bit, but kind of wherever he played, that team started winning. And I don't think it's a coincidence when it happens multiple times throughout your career, when you're going to different teams and the situation seems to drastically change once you arrive. Matt, I do want to go to our next segment though. We call this and twins. And again, what we do here is we look at the Hall of Fame today, we see who's in it already, and we say, you know, no one's ever going to be a perfect twin. But if there's someone in the Hall of Fame today already that, you know, resembles Battier, whether it be from statistical reasons or the style they played or how they fit into a team, that's what we're trying to identify here. Betty might be a little tougher than others, but I have someone down I feel pretty good about. I'm excited to hear who you have. Who would you say is Battier's twin? Okay, so this was tough for me. This was, it tough, was tough, and we're going to talk about this when we get into whether or not he should get in the hall. Um, but uh, 
So a little backstory, Battier's favorite team growing up was those bad boy Detroit Pistons. And while I would say stylistically, they're two different players, the guy who kind of like when you think of those bad boy Pistons is like thought of as like the the glue guy or, you know, the guy who's holding things together on the perimeter defensively. And, you know, he's a great shooter for his time um, is Joe Dumars. Joe Dumars better ball handler than Battier, better player, quite frankly, than Battier was um to his era but if like if we were to put Battier in the hall and we had to pick somebody out who kind of resembled him stylistically I guess it would it would be Dumars again I struggled with this a lot just because like guys like Battier don't make the hall of fame um and we're going to talk about this but I'm really curious to see who you have uh, Mr. Stathead yeah so I went back I had to go back far Mm -hmm. but I did find someone I like um and that is Bill Bradley, um, who played, of course, on those championship Knicks teams in the early Mm. 70s. Um, Bill Bradley, someone who is a huge college star. And and we haven't really talked about this yet, but Shane Battier at Duke is one of the better college players in NBA, or I'm sorry, in college basketball history. He won a championship at Duke because Shane Battier wins. He made another Final Four. He's most outstanding player of the Final Four. He wins all the Player of the Year awards, Naismith, Wooden, everything you can. One of the better college players uh, of all time. Bill Bradley was the same type of deal, but at Princeton, where he was dropping like 30 points a game or something, before as a Rhodes Scholar, he went to Oxford for a bit and then came back and just decided to play a little basketball. Now, those Knicks teams of the 70s, if I say, you know, tell me about those Knicks, who comes to mind? You're going to tell me Willis Reed. You're going to tell me Walt Frazier. Then you might tell me like Earl Monroe then you probably tell me Dave DeBusher. These are all Hall of Famers. And maybe then you're like, oh yeah, Bill Bradley was on that team as well. And Bill Bradley very much was, and he is in the Hall of Fame. But the guy for his career averaged 12 points a game, three boards, three assists. He was a decent defender. He was not as good as Shane Battier, um, but he was a guy who, again, was taking charges, deflecting passes. He was a part of a team and he did little things for the team to win. I think if he was in a different situation, maybe he scores a, a little more. He plays, you know, a little bigger role, but he kind of saw where he fit on those teams. He played the part and he won two championships and he was a winner while he was there. Now the guy only made one all-star team. Shane Battier never made one, but Bill Bradley only made one. He won two championships, just like Battier. And as I said, excellent player at Princeton, which as I remind my get my listeners every week, almost, it's basketball career. It actually is technically supposed to include high school, which I don't think anyone looks at ever, but it's high school, college, basketball, international. It's everything. Bradley, I always have been told, got really in because he was that good at Princeton um, and also had a decent NBA career. But Bradley didn't have to wait at all to get in the Hall of Fame. He, it wasn't like this like late edition later on by a senior committee. Bradley got in in 1983, which was just a few years after he retired. Um, statistically, they're not very different at all. If you go to advanced metrics, Shane Battier beats Bradley across the board here. Um, so that was kind of where I went to. I actually looked more from a statistical standpoint because I feel like that's what people are going to just lock in on when they go to Battier at any time. And they'd be like, there's no one like him. And yeah, again, 8.6 points per game. The only Hall of Famers with that level of scoring is really like the Ben Wallace, Dennis Robbins of the world, which 
we know why they're in. It's a whole different ball game with them. And Batty doesn't have that going for him, like seven rebounding titles or four defensive player of the year awards. But Bradley is a guy who really, he's in the Hall of Fame because he had a great college career and he won in the NBA. And that's what Shane Battier was, a great college career, and he won in the NBA. And, and that's where I came to my conclusion. But I'm not going to say, Matt, I'm not going to lie. I love the Dumars thing. Like, Dumars was a better score, but from, like, a role on a team, his defensive ability, of course, a little different positionally. But I, I don't mind that at all. I, I really like that. I think it's a little more outside the box. But with Battier, you kind of got to go there. Yeah, and – um. You know, Rodman's not a bad one, too, because it's like, I mean, people kind of understood it at the time, but I think they got the wrong parts of it because they're like, oh, he's such a great rebounder. But it's like it's more than just the it's the fact that he's creating all these like more chances for Michael Jordan to score the basketball, more chances for Scottie Pippen to score the basketball. I think that's and it's like the same thing with Battier, where it's like what he does is like hard to to see on a basketball reference page, you know, but it's incredibly valuable. Um, we'll, we'll talk about it in a second, but yeah. 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 So let's go, let's go to the main event here. Let's go to court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Um, and this is where we talk pros and cons and, and Matt, you've been dangling some different areas you want to tackle here. Mm-hmm. And before I kind of let you cook, I, I do want to, I do want to hit on this one thing. Cause I, I went down a rabbit hole on this and I need, I need another person's perspective to bounce some of this stuff off of. So you mentioned it earlier and I alluded to it a little bit with the, you know, did all the little things that don't show up in the box score thing, but you mentioned earlier, Battier is a glue guy and maybe one of the better glue guys in NBA history. And of course, the second that hit my brain, who are the best glue guys in NBA history, I started, you know, dabbling and going through different teams and, And then I was like, well, what the hell even is a glue guy? Like in my head, I have glue guys. There's X factors. I have all these different roles, but there's definitely no clear definition. Um, So I was like, if anyone follows me uh, or anyone that follows me on Twitter, and if you don't go follow me, I always write, I'm talking about Rushmore's. And I started Matt building up a glue guy Rushmore. And I want to throw some names out here for you. If you have your own, Please mm. remove mine and throw yours in here. But really quickly here, if we were building a glue guy Rushmore of all time, here are some of the names I was coming up with. And I want you to help me quickly here build one. And again, it's not going to be perfect because I didn't give Matt a heads up we were doing this. And I've been spitballing this. But the names I came up with are Battier's right up there with me, Michael Cooper from the Lakers, Tayshaun Prince from those Pistons teams, Derek Fisher from those Lakers teams. I also have Chicago Bull Horse Grant. I have Bobby Jones from the Sixers in the 80s. I have Bill Bradley, who we were just um, talking about. And then this is the one I, I don't know if he should be considered a glue guy because I think he's almost a little too good. Andre Igladawa. I, I feel like he's more of an X factor because at times he can be the best player on the floor where some of these glue guys I feel like are more they're that perfect puzzle piece you put into a team, but I never would consider him like maybe the best guy in the floor at a given time. I think when Igladawa won finals MVP, I almost removed him from glue guy status to X factor status where Ginobili sits where yes, they maybe aren't the top score on the team ever, 
but at a given time, they can be the best guy on the floor. And I feel like glue guy, I don't give that same recognition. So I want to hear your thoughts on glue guy versus X factor. And I want to hear your thoughts on how do we build this rush more here? Okay. A couple thoughts. You just threw a lot at me at once. I threw a lot uh, at you yeah. at once. So first thing, it's funny you mentioned Michael Cooper, because as I was trying to do our twins, I really, really thought Michael Cooper was in the hall just because, um, just because everyone loves that Showtime team. And I feel like they just have like everyone from the Showtime team is pretty much in the hall these days. So I figured that'd be the best comparison for doing like one-to-ones just because, you know, very similar play style, like three and D guy, uh, really good catch and shoot shooter. So that was the first thing I wanted to say. Second thing, I think the guy who's too good for this list that you're talking about is Bobby Jones. I talk about him just a little bit in the Andre Kirilenko part of Blazing the Trail. Insane defender, yeah. insanely, insanely good defender Too during good. his time. The secretary of defense. Yeah. Um, he was a guy I really got to explore when I was doing the Karolinko thing, but he was, I think he's too good to be called a Google guy. Just want to say that. Out. We're moving. Okay. Out. Next thing. I think the important thing, I think all the guys you named fit that in different ways. Um, but let's just like, I think the important thing is that we kind of establish like a working definition for glue guy. And for me, what that would be is like, Okay, so you can't, like, these on-ball superstars like LeBron James never can be a glue guy. They're, like, the big piece, right? So, so like, on offense, you need, like, two big pieces, right? We'll say, like, a, like a big scorer, big-time scorer, and, like, a big-time passer slash ball handler, right? You have those two big pieces offensively, and then you want to put, like, these little, these guys to glue the cracks in, you know? you to have If you have a great passer, you want somebody for him to pass it to, a shooter that once he gets them open can score if you have a great score again you want somebody they can kick it out to good uh good uh good shooter open three-point shooter right and then at the same time when the ball is in that shooter's hands you don't want them holding it too long you want them to make a quick decision right so you want that glue guy to be a great shooter quick decision maker you don't want them to turn the ball over a lot because you want it in your core guy's hands right so there's that so i think those are the things like you want quick decision maker great shooter and um I can't, I can't remember the last thing. Oh, don't turn the ball over, right? Yep. On offense for the glue guy. Defensively, so defensively, imagine you have your, you're just your, because I think every, pretty much every great defense, you need like some kind of big body in the paint, right? A big seven footer, six ten guy who can just take space up. Like that's so important on defense. Like think of like Yao Ming on the Rockets. Sure. Probably didn't have like the best um, like defensive instincts or was that mobile, but the fact that he's just like this big guy who can block shots and take up space, so huge. So once you have that piece, you need to get guys who can fill the cracks in, guys who can execute the scheme on the perimeter, guys who make it so that this big guy isn't getting fouls too much because he's challenging all these shots at the rim, guys who can, you know, rack up steals to create these events so you don't even have to worry about them going, the offensive player going to the rim. So, you're so what we're talking about is, again, execute scheme, solid on the perimeter, gets like turnovers or avoids making mistakes like fouls. So like all these things that basically what we're talking about is like Shane Battier, but like, you get what I'm saying? So we have this working definition of glue guy. Yep. So just to summarize, we have shooters, open guys who can hit open shots, right? We have the quick decision makers. We have guys who don't turn the ball over. And then on defense guys who tend to not make mistakes, tend to not foul too much guys who can execute the scheme. You're asking them to execute. 
guys who can take a little bit of pressure off that anchor big man defender. Okay. So like, I feel like to some extent, all the guys you mentioned are, are pretty much fitting into that um, little spectrum. Now, when you talk to, when you talk about X factors, these are the guys I think of like, and he's a lot better than an X factor, but like, let's just think about like what Donovan Mitchell can do sometimes. Like, so, so like, you know, Don Mitchell, he's like a really, really good score, but he has this thing about this, like this way about him. I, I call it vol- scoring volatility where he can get like so hot sometimes that he can swing a game. Like he can swing a game just cause he's, he's so ridiculously hot. Like he cannot miss and he can keep up with any scorer in the league when he hits that level. Right. So he can completely swing a game. And so like when I'm thinking of X factors, I'm thinking of a guy who's like, there's they they have this this particular skill to them that's so like just susceptible to volatility like it can be really bad sometimes but it can also be like really amazing where you can like yeah. you can do things that other only the best the best can do and i think mono is probably like the perfect encapsulation of that where it's like he's like control like you know pop turned him into control chaos but he's like a mad scientist you know what yeah. i mean where he he can make these passes where it's like maybe three or four guys in the league had access to that pass during that time. But at the same time, he makes a, he could have days where he's just like turning the ball over left and right. And you're like, Manu, not only are you like not like standing out, but you're like killing us. You're like actively killing us. And again, like Pav learned to rein that in a bit, but like when it was like, when the X factor was popping, when they were exploding, like a like think of like a volcano, like they, change the entire course of a game and i think that's the big difference between x factor and glue guy glue guys are like they glue the pieces in, they fit next to these these big time players they slot next to them really well but they're never like very rarely is shane gonna do something that just completely like takes you from like having no chance to beat a team to it swings everything like you you can beat this team he's the guy who like if you guys are like evenly matched or they're slightly better than you shane can take you over the top right he's not He's not like rewriting the course of history with like a some heat bizarre heat check he's on. You know what I mean? Like these X factors. So I think that's the big um, differentiating point to to name actual players and create a Mount Rushmore. I probably need like a list of every NBA player in NBA history. But like all the names you got you had were pretty good. I would say maybe Iguodala would be more of the glue guy than X factor. At least this version of Iguodala, yeah. the one we've seen the last five years. So. Super tough to build it. Do you think that like, cause w- again, when I think mm-hmm. of a glue guy, one of the first people like, like Shane Battier mm-hmm. is almost immediately who I think of. Do you think if you ever want to go do that exercise one day, or when I see this on basketball news, I'll, I'll laugh to myself. Maybe one when day when I stole it, when you, when you steal it and give me no credit. No, I'm just joking. I think there's a strong chance Shane Battier is making that. I, I yeah. think he is. Yeah. Like, I think his face is on there and, mm-hmm. and I, I just, Everything you mentioned, and I love you just broke down glue guys so well because I just argue with people all the time. If someone's a glue guy, you actually gave like set criteria that we can then just follow down a lot more process oriented right on brand with Battier today. I more just argue my points until someone tires themselves out here. Mm-hmm. But but I feel like he he's just everything you laid out there, he fit. He fit, he fit perfectly. And, and I, and I think he's on there and why I wanted to start there with this conversation is Matt, do you think there's room for glue guys I knew in, you're in, the hall, in, in the hall of fame? Like, is there room for him? Because 
again, Bobby Jones is in the Hall of Fame, but we already removed him because maybe he's too good for that list. Um, Andre Iguodala, that's another day we can have a conversation about him when he one day retired. But all those other guys are not in the Hall of Fame. And to be perfectly honest, they're not really sniffing the Hall of Fame. Michael Cooper actually recently was finally up again, like after a long hiatus as like a nominee. But um, he, he did not get in. And that guy has five championships and he has eight all defensive teams or even someone like a Bruce Bowen, who I haven't brought up at all, who I think is pretty similar to Shane in terms of a three and D guy who won championships. Bruce Bowen was an eight time all defensive team, three championships. You know, he's not sniffing around at all that his name's not brought up when we're talking about nominees every year. And they have a lot of nominees every year. Like Muggsy Bogues is a nominee some of these years. And I love Muggsy, but I, I don't think he's in the caliber range of some of these other guys. So my question to you again is, do you think there's room in the hall of fame for a guy who was just the best or one of the best at being that glue guy? Uh, see, okay. That's a lot. That's anyway, a lot. You when, said. If you want to think about it for one second, let me have, make one other point while you maybe okay. process yeah, it for ahead. a second. Everyone that listens knows I do this for football and baseball as well. Um, in football, there was a huge debate for a very long time of like, our special teamer, should they be in the Hall of Fame, like a kicker or a punter? They finally elected a punter for the first time back in 2014, Ray Guy. He's the only punter still in. There's a few place kickers. There's no kick returners or punt returners yet. I think Devin Hester might change that. But in football, positions matter a lot. The positions that can change the game more, they, they, you know, they're all in quarterbacks, defensive linemen, offensive linemen, they all get in. Um, kickers and punters are still kind of excluded. They're slightly being let in finally after all these years, but we're looking, you know, they play a role on the team. The role's important. I mean, field goal kickers can determine the outcome of a game with one kick, but they don't have a quote unquote, the level of importance or they can't change the game as much as a quarterback can or a running back. So that's why they're not really looked at as, okay, we need to put them in the hall of fame in baseball relievers for a very long time. They play a role. Their role is important. They close out the game. They finish that win up, but for a very long time, they're like closers barely pitch many innings. Like some of these guys didn't even pitch a thousand innings. Why should they be in the hall of fame? They're not hall of famers. Yes. They played a role, but it wasn't important enough to warrant Hall of Fame. Now, that has changed drastically last 10 years. Tons of relievers now are flooding the Hall of Fame where there actually maybe be too many in right now, but that was a big change that happened. If I look at basketball, there's not as many positions as baseball and as football, and everyone on a basketball court can have the ball in their hands and shoot, rebound, pass, so there's not these defined roles that really maybe limit what they do. So you really kind of just let in quote unquote, the players that maybe score the most or rebound the most or have the most blocks, things like that. I feel like a glue guy, which is a role, even if you play it the best is not never going to even be looked at in the same light as a kicker or a relief pitcher. But to me, it's kind of what they're doing. They are playing a role that, as you mentioned earlier, Matt, a team needs, you can't have five, guys that all need to shoot a million times you need a guy to do all the little things and to fit in well with the team so will basketball one day have this change of heart where we look at the glue guys and we just recognize they did that to the best of their abilities and they were one of the best to do it 
doesn't matter that their stats don't show superstar status or is it too different from how we look at these maybe other positions in other sports where a glue guy as much as they're appreciated and we recognize them to a point of they're important to team success they're never hall of fame worthy because all the metrics we tend to look at don't really pan out for them most of the time Mm -hmm. so this gets to like an interesting like philosophical conundrum i want to say one thing and this is just me personally i don't really trust before the year maybe i don't know this is arbitrary number but say like 2015 2014 ish right i don't trust the the accolade winners all the time of like certain awards just because of like we didn't know like about basketball, what we know now, but the things that have been important in basketball have always applied. So it's like a weird thing. Like for example, 2003, 2004, Steve Nash does make an all-star team and he's one of the eight best players in the world. And I'm just like, excuse me. And it's not like, cause he missed a lot of games. I looked, I think he played 81 games. I'm like, okay, now that's what, that was like a big red flag. I'm like, okay, I can't always trust this stuff. And so in the article I wrote, I make a case that at his peak, Battier has like all-star caliber seasons. I'd say maybe if I had to guess, Somebody, if you put a gun to my head, maybe one or two, right? Okay. One or two all-star caliber seasons. So that proves that, okay, so let me backtrack for a second. I think there's two ways, two ways to talk about the Hall of Fame, right? The, the criteria they actually use, and then, which is like this really fluid thing, and it probably has to be that way for, for things like this, right? Or like a hard and fast, like, what did you do on the court? Was this like meeting our threshold right what was your impact on the court period not any of this like cultural influence this Allen iverson cultural none of that just the on the court right and so the philosophical question you posed the glue guy right glue guy can he have a hall of fame level impact so battier at his peak borderline all-star okay maybe like one of the 25 best players in the world if you really if we if we knew what we knew about basketball now and we went back and voted on it i'd be comfortable that a handful of people would say he was an all-star maybe like 2006 maybe 2007 whatever right so that proves that glue guys can be all-stars right so hall of famers usually think like uh who's somebody who's just made a career okay joe johnson he's been like an eight-time all-star he's not in the hall yet is he so that's a bad example okay he, but he, he played like last year yes yeah, yeah. he's, <laughs> never, he's never stopping <laughs> okay but joe johnson's gonna be a hall of famer right we're pretty sure of that he, he will because he's past thresholds but it's uh, we did an episode on him i think it was like my fourth episode i think I, at the time i said i think he was gonna get in just because he had like eight all-star appearances. Yeah, whatever. exactly. So, like, it just so, like... so a thing like that, right? Where based on this hypothetical, this is what my threshold would be, right? Yeah. You just use the analysis for the games where it's like eight all-star, eight true all-star seasons. That's probably going to get you in. So like, if you're like a glue guy with longevity, right? Then you can get into the hall based on this criteria. The problem with Battier is he doesn't have, by my eye, enough of that like all-star level glue guy longevity to make it based on the merits of that hall of fame candidacy. Right now going over to this, like really subjective, really fluid criteria that we do have in place. One of the things I've noticed is that the league has kind of let guys in just for changing the way basketball is played, right? Not so much what you did on the court, but like this outside influence, this, you know, 
to steal a term from Blazing the Trail, a revolutionary impact. And I think, in my opinion, that Battier is so important to telling the story of the NBA, what he did embracing these high-level scouting reports. I mean, look at the the past NBA finals. Part of the reason the Warriors were able to swing the series is because they they did some calculations and they're like, wait a second. If Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown drive to the left side, that decreases their efficiency by a few points as a team. So that might give us a better chance of winning. Ultimately, I think that is really one of the big pieces of why they were able to come back, win the last three games of the series. But that's Battier. Like, yeah, it was the Houston Rockets and Daryl Morey, but like, there's a lot of smart guys with a lot of ideas, but you you have to have the players that are willing to carry these things out. Guys who are athletic enough to be at this level of basketball, to be carrying out, to be the conduit of these um, experiments, right? So I think if we're talking about it from the way the NBA currently, or not the NBA, it's, it's all of basketball, the way that the, the Basketball Association currently looks at these Hall of Fame applicants, I think based on those merits, Shane should eventually get in, in my opinion. Yeah, so you kind of you kind of beat me to the punch. So let me officially ask the 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 questions oh, here. Sorry. Then I'll no, you're, you're okay, Matt. <laughs> we, we 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 we're coming up. We gotta wrap this up soon. Anyway, I knew we were gonna. I know we need more time than this. That's my fault for the scheduling of this. But final verdict here. I'll ask you. I'll answer the questions too, and then we'll get you out of here. So my questions: You are one, Matt. If if you had a vote. If you were one day, and Matt, maybe you will one day have a vote. Hmm. One day you have a vote, Shane Battier is on the ballot. Would you vote Shane Battier is a Hall of Famer? And then the second question is, as you just pretty much answered, but if you want to elaborate a little more, you can. Do you think Shane Battier will ever get into the Hall of Fame? If I had a vote and I was using the current criteria, yes, I think I would vote him in. If it was this made-up criteria where it's based based on strictly like career impact, I would say no. And then as for the second thing, I think it's the same thing. I well, actually, no, I take that back. I don't think the hall, at least at this point, is it's gonna take a little longer. I think they will eventually, just because of the criteria, the way they they kind of look at these revolutionary guys um in that era. And then plus the college career too, you have to take that in. So I think yes, they will. But if, again, if the Hall adapted my method, they also wouldn't. So it's, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. And before I, before I answer real quick mm-hmm. about the winning, we, we didn't get to touch on this, I think, enough. But I said earlier, right, high school matters, crazily mm-hmm. enough, college matters. NBA. So there's only been 15 players in history of basketball that have won a championship in high school, college, and the NBA. Just 15. And seven of the 15 are Hall of Famers. It's some names you would think like Bill Russells of the world, Kareem's, Bill Walton's, Magic Johnson's. And then there's people like Shane Battier, Jason Terry, Glenn Rice that have done it. But the thing is, he just didn't win one per level. I mean, he won one at Duke. He won two in the NBA. But he actually, when he was in high school, he won three state championships there. He was the National High School Player of the Year, three state championships, goes to Duke, National Championship Player of the Year, then NBA two more championships. The thing is, though, when he gets to the NBA, the accolades like he was getting previously, it's two all-defensive second teams, which I really, really wanted to pick your brain on why you think he only made two if he was that good of a defender. But, Matt, we might have to just argue about that on Twitter one day. 
But anyway, he just, he won at every level. And then also he was a part of that 27 game win streak with the Heat, which is the second longest uh, streak in NBA history. And then also he was a part of that Rockets team with a 22 game win streak. So two different teams he played for. He was a part of the second and third longest streaks. He's the first player in NBA history to be part of two 20 game winning streaks. Again, we keep going back. Is it a coincidence his team keeps winning? Or is it because of Shane Battier? I think Shane Battier plays a major part there. My quick answers, though, here, do I think Shane Battier is a Hall of Famer? I do not. And, and that is strictly behind, you know, I think there is an opportunity for the best role players of all time or guys that played huge roles on teams to get in. But I do feel like, is unfair maybe as it is, I need to see almost more than two championships. Like, Again, we got the Michael Coopers with five championships, eight all-defensive teams. I'm kind of borderline if he even should get in. He's a Defensive Player of the Year award. Mm. You got people like Bruce Bowen, three championships, eight all-defenses. And then you even got, you know, guys like Robert Ory, which I haven't done an episode on. I need to one day. That guy has seven championships and hit some of the biggest shots in NBA history. And actually, low-key was an excellent defender as well. Um, I don't think anyone talks about that, but especially early in his career, excellent defender. Those guys all in all are in. I don't know even how I feel about all of them at this point, but even if one day I felt like maybe he should, I think all those guys probably get in before Shane. So I'm going no, and do I ever think he'll get in? It's kind of the same of what I was just saying. I think a lot of other guys that played similar roles, but maybe even on more championship teams would have to get in before I think Shane gets in. And I just don't think the Hall is ever going to maybe accept them like, the football hall of fame started doing special teamers. And then, you know, like I said, relievers in baseball, maybe it changes Matt one day again, as we get more and more into analytics and looking at all the little things, maybe we appreciate Shane even more later on. And one day he does get in, but I think it's a no for me on both fronts. If he got in God, I would not be mad whatsoever. I just don't see it happening. Mm -hmm. So Matt, before we get you out of here, I, I think I kind of hyped you up a little in the beginning here, but I do want to pass it over to you and give you a, a brief opportunity just to plug some stuff. Cause I know you're always working on a ton of stuff. So please, you know, take a couple minutes here and let everyone know what you're working on, what you have coming out and where to find you at. Yeah. So the, during the off season, I basically spent most of my time working on a 10 part article and podcast series called blazing the trail. Um, it highlights players like Shane Battier, who I've, um, kind of appraised as being uh, revolutionary players, players who've kind of had skill sets that are pretty commonplace today and pretty important to winning today, but they had those in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, you can find that at basketballnews.com. By the time this episode drops, all of my um, all the chapters will have been completed. So yeah, just check it out on basketballnews.com. Again, that's Blazing the Trail. You can follow me on Twitter at mattisa 15 That's at M-A-T-I-S-S-A-15. Um, I cover the league at large for sites like Basketball News, SB Nation, The Analyst, Fan Cited, and sometimes Forbes. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me, Jim. Uh, let's try not to make it a year between our, our episodes because I, I have way too much fun doing these. Um, and I just need somebody to talk about the obscure players of NBA history with. I mean, Matt, you are always welcome to this podcast. I just You just named off like a million publications. Again, if you just Google basketball, Matt's name will show up. Um, this guy's everywhere. Oh, no. He's he's one of he's one of the best young writers in the game. He really is. He's worth reading. 
He's worth following on Twitter. Uh, Matt, I always have a blast. I always know we need to schedule more than an hour when we sync up. So I will definitely have you back on. It will not be a year from now. It will be sooner. We'll find another fun topic to talk about. Good luck this season covering it as we were talking about before we started recording. It's going to be a fun one. It's super interesting. I was going to really quickly put you on the spot of who's winning the title this year, but I don't think that's fair. So I'm not going to do that to you unless you want to answer it. I'm no. good. Yeah, you're <laughs> good. That's what I thought. Well, Matt, again, good luck this year. Thanks for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. All right. I'll talk to you soon, Jim. All right. I want to thank Matt again for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed having him on. Um, always a good time. And I'll definitely make sure we get him on again soon. Um, but that is all we have for you today. Uh, if you don't already, please subscribe, follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Pod of Fame and enjoy basketball season. It's back. We got the Baseball playoffs on. We basketball's back. Football's in full swing. It's one of the best times of the year. Enjoy it. And we will talk to you next Monday. Have a great week.